I'm DeWitt Bingham. Welcome to the Justice for All podcast show, where we discuss all things social and criminal justice related, from the front end to the back end, and everything in between. You have a right to remain silent, because anything you say can and will be held against you. You have a right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed for you. You're in the self-incrimination protection zone, where there is no cruel and unusual punishment, no illegal search and seizure. The exclusionary rule has you covered. So sit back, relax, and become sold on this week's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Justice for All podcast show. I'm DeWitt Bingham, your host. Thank you for tuning in to the show that discusses all things social justice and criminal justice, where the goals are to inform you, the American citizen, of your constitutional rights, to provide educational occupational guidance to high school and college students, and to be a voice for change. The title of today's show is The Supreme Court, Highest Court in the Land. Y'all know how I feel about judges, in particular, retired chief judges, the Honorable Judge John Freeze, wonderful former chief judge of the 11th Judicial Circuit of Illinois, and the Honorable Judge Elizabeth Ra, who I call the first lady of the 11th Judicial Circuit, as she was the first woman to be a judge in the 11th Judicial Circuit in 1993. And Illinois Supreme Court Justice, the Honorable Justice Rita Gorman, to a wonderful judge. Throughout my career as a probation officer the past 35 years, I followed their careers and loved them because it was no doubt in my mind whatsoever that they were fair, honest, compassionate, and always had an open mind. Having an open mind can be a difficult thing when you've been taught stereotypes about other groups and these beliefs influence your behavior What we learn becomes internalized, forming a literal record inside of us. We're born innocent, but can be taught prejudicial ideas or prejudicial things. Thoughts and experiences and other evidence may refute these records, but one can choose to allow these hurtful views to influence their behavior, making them prejudicial or racist. It is difficult to have an open mind if you are prejudiced or racist. If the Bible is right, and I believe that it is, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speak it. An individual that is racist will eventually say something discriminating, prejudicial or racist, such as blame the victim for being sexually assaulted based on her appearance, believe a defendant is being defiant for not following instructions when in actuality he or she may not be able to read, or blame parents for juveniles problems because the parents have a biracial marriage. True story. I'm not going to mention any names, but there was a judge who I worked with who seemed to enjoy making the probation officer look bad in front of the client and the client looked bad in court. On one occasion, after asking a particular father why he had not paid the per diem for the 30 days his child was detained in the juvenile detention center, The parent stated something to this effect. I told y'all not to lock him up. Allow him to reside with me as opposed to his mother. 
but y'all locked him up in the juvenile detention center. This particular parent was an upstanding citizen in the community, had put in several years at a great company along with his wife, but his child had never resided with him. And this particular judge that was on the bench in juvenile court made it a habit of trying to get money from the parents. And it seemed like he was more into trying to get money from the parents as opposed to rehabilitating the child. The judge then proceeded to beckon me to the bench and ask me why dad had not paid. Earlier in my career, about my second year, he basically led me to believe if I made some mistake in the future, he was going to do something about it. The mistake was accidentally putting a traffic ticket in the criminal history section of a PSI. I stated at the time like he was really going to send this person to prison for an extra traffic ticket. By this time, I had about 10 years under my belt, and my response to him was, Dad just told you to your face he wasn't going to pay it. See, he wanted to try to embarrass me one more time, but I wasn't having it anymore. It seemed as if no one would say anything to him either, not even his colleague, until one sentencing in 2001 got him reviewed by the state judicial board. This is what was reported in the local news outlet. The judge stated to a biracial couple about their son in juvenile court, and I quote, I frankly believe this young man wouldn't be here if mom and dad had done their job. You gave him a tremendous disadvantage in life. He is multiracial, and in the history of this stage of our life, in this country, that was a terrible burden to put on him. The parents were the ones who petitioned the state judicial board. There was no empirical evidence to support the judge's assumption. There were no significant differences in adjustment between children raised by same race parents and those raised by mixed parents. The mother, who was a mother to two biracial daughters, called the comments, and I quote, crap, unquote. She also noted that it is not fair to blame someone for falling in love with a person of another race. At that time, there were 1.3 million interracial marriages, and that was back in 2001. Today, there are approximately 11 million interracial marriages. 49% of Asian newlyweds have a spouse of a different ethnicity or race. 39% of Hispanics have a spouse of a different ethnicity or race. But chalk one up for my man John Elliott, NAACP representative at the time, who called the judge's remarks irresponsible, talking about having an open mind. Mr. Elliott went on to say the NAACP was shocked and appalled at the judge's behavior and concluded by stating, and I quote, in this day and time, such behavior is not acceptable from the bench. We encourage him to refrain from any other derogatory and unfounded statements which would divide the community, end quote. See, judges can help encourage a person to change or help destroy them for life. That's why I like what Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor had to say about people being redeemed. When asked if some people are beyond redemption, 
the great Supreme Court justice, my favorite current Supreme Court justice, stated, and I quote, people do some very bad things. They're still human beings with some redeeming qualities. They can do some horrible things. They're still valuable human beings in other ways. But yes, I do believe there are some people who are evil and perhaps can't be redeemed. In other words, there are some people who don't want to be redeemed or who don't want to change. And so in those cases, those of us who work in the criminal justice system, all we can really do is keep pressing forward in our attempts to try to bring about change in the individual's lives. Based on my observations of the judges that I mentioned at the top of the show, they didn't discriminate, show favoritism, were treatment-oriented, and always seasoned their words with grace. That's the reason I asked Judge Freeze and Judge Rob to be guests on the podcast. If you haven't listened to episode three, entitled The Courts, I invite you to do so. They talk about their career paths. They talk about the Honorable Judge Carla Barnes, the first African-American judge in the 11th Judicial Circuit of Illinois, the roles they played in seeing that an African-American was appointed to the bench in this circuit. Judge Rob and Judge Freeze, two of the best judges Illinois has ever had. But I want to point out that all judges are not like that. In the Douglas Connection, I write about three judges that are connected to me personally. You may be asking, how is that, DeWitt? Well, first let me tell you who they are. The great Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. The infamous Supreme Court Justice James P. McReynolds. And Federal District Court Justice Ruby Hullen. In the Douglas Connection, I talk about the Emma Jane Lee case. It was a pay equalization case. It was in regard to the black teachers at the Douglas School being paid equally to the Caucasian teachers in the Festus R6 School District. Well, the Honorable Judge Ruby Hullen was the presiding judge in the pay equalization case. I want you to know I had to dig deep for that case. The year was 1943. It took place at the United States District Court of Eastern Missouri in St. Louis, and I found it in the archives in Kansas City, Missouri. And as I've said before, the way I'm connected is many of my descendants attended Douglas before it was integrated into the Festa school system, including my grandfather, who was in the first graduating class of five in 1940. But let me give you an idea of who Judge Hullen was. He was a Caucasian man who was just appointed to the federal bench in 1943. He graduated from Kansas City School of Law in 1914. From 1915 to 1917, he had a private practice in Centralia, Missouri. He served as a United States Army Lieutenant Commander from 1917 to 1918 was Boone County, Missouri prosecutor from 1920 to 1924, went back to his private practice in St. Louis and was also a Washington University Law School lecturer from 1924 to 1943. Again, he had just been nominated to United States District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri by President Franklin D. Roosevelt on July 8, 1943, he served on the court until his death on July 7, 1956, when he died 
He was 62 years old. He was a good man. Although the Emma Jane Lee case is directly related to me, Judge Hullen did not become known for that case, but for the 1950 Fairground Pool case in St. Louis. This case involved three African-Americans attempting to enter the Fairgrounds Park Pool, disobeying the city's segregation policy. Judge Hullen implied that racial exclusion from any municipal pool, even if another truly equal pool was provided, would still violate the Constitution. He said a comparable pool might mitigate discrimination, but it would not validate it. Seemingly, Judge Hullen was implying that a black swimmer who had to walk past a whites-only pool to get to a truly equal Jim Crow pool would not be receiving equal treatment under the law, as mandated by the 14th Amendment. His court order in the Emma Jane Lee case stated, The official policy and official acts of the defendants, the Festus Board of Education, E.W. Rose, President, Mr. Lashley, Harold McCormick, Dr. J.E. Rutledge, Dr. C.H. Cullen, R.W. Johnson, members, and Mark Scully, superintendent of schools, Festus, Missouri, in carrying out over a period of years the custom and practice of paying the plaintiff and all other Negro teachers and principals in the public school system of Festus, smaller salaries than being paid to white teachers and principals with similar professional qualifications and experience, if or in so far as such differentials were or are predicated on race or color are unlawful, unconstitutional, and void and are in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States and of Section 41 and 43 of Title VIII of the United States Code. In view of the resolution of the defendant, the Board of Education of Festus, Missouri, as set out above, it is deemed that there is no occasion to grant further relief to the plaintiff. The taxable court costs to be paid by the defendants. The order was signed by the judge, the board's attorneys, David Grant and Thurgood Marshall. It should be noted that the wonderful people of the Festus School Board made it much easier for Judge Holland to enter that order. But I want to make it clear that he was prepared to rule in the Douglas School teacher's favor. Which leads me to the greatest attorney, lawyer, and judge of all time, Thurgood Marshall. He was lead counsel in Brown versus the Board of Education, appointed to the Supreme Court by President Lyndon Baines Johnson, who I would argue, next to Lincoln and FDR, was the best president ever. But before being appointed to the Supreme Court, Marshall attended Howard University, a historical black college. He wanted to attend law school at the University of Maryland, but was denied admittance because he was of the black race. For the black community, it was one of the best things that ever happened because it was at Howard University where he is trained by one of the greatest law teachers of all time who taught him how to fight segregation. Talking about none other than the great Charles Houston known as the Jim Crow killer. I'll get back to Houston in just a minute, but Marshall never believed in the death penalty because it was statistically 
clear to him that it was being used disproportionately against black people. He sets out to make things better for African-Americans. And before he wins the Brown case, he represents the Douglas teachers of Festus, Missouri, the teachers who taught my grandfather. Houston teaches Marshall and his law students to attack segregation by demonstrating the inequality resulting from the separate but equal doctrine dating back to the Supreme Court's Plessy v. Ferguson ruling in 1897, which I would argue was one of the first cases the Supreme Court got wrong. Houston knew it was impossible to be both separate and equal because one race was living much better than the other. I liken it to Matthew 6 and 24, which states, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We know that white men of that dispensation held to the separate but despised the equal, loved the separate but hated the equal. Question is, is that desired today? Houston not only taught Marshall and his students the separate but equal doctrine, he also taught them the Margold doctrine. You're probably asking yourself, what was the Margold doctrine, Do it? I thought you'd never ask. Everyone is familiar with separate but equal. Let me educate you on the other doctrine, the Margold doctrine. That's M-A-R-G-O-L-D, Margold. In 1922, a man by the name of Charles Garland, a dropout from Harvard, donated an $800,000 inheritance to establish what became known as the American Fund for Public Service or the Garland Fund. As a foundation dedicated to social reform, the American Fund for Public Service, or the Garland Fund, awarded the NAACP a $100,000 grant for the employment of a special counsel to study the legal status of African Americans and plan a legal campaign. So the NAACP gets an eighth of that Garland Fund to help make things better for black folk. The NAACP then hires a man by the name of Nathan Margold, again, M-A-R-G-O-L-D, Nathan. He was a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Margold focuses his report on an assessment of discrimination in public schools advised the NAACP to boldly challenge the constitutional validity of the underfunded black schools as a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, thus establishing the Margold Doctrine. In 1931, Nathan Margold files a report with the Library of Congress titled Preliminary Report to the Joint Committee Supervising the Expenditure of the 1930 Appropriation by the American Fund for Public Service. 
It is currently part of the NAACP record. I will put a link in the show notes that will enable you to see a JPEG of the front page of this report for proof that it still exists today in the manuscript division at the Library of Congress. It was the Margot Doctrine or approach that Houston taught his pupils to fight the battle of segregation, which leads me to my third and final judge who plainly was a racist serving on the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, James P. McReynolds. Again, I write about him in the Douglas Connection. He's connected to me in all kinds of ways. It all begins with the Gaines versus Canada case. Gaines was a scholar who attended my alma mater, Lincoln University. He applied to attend the University of Missouri Law School, just as Thurgood Marshall had applied to attend the University of Maryland Law School and was rejected. I should mention that Marshall would eventually file a lawsuit against the University of Maryland, and the Maryland Supreme Court ordered the school to integrate in 1936. I'll put a link to the case in the show notes. It is this 1936 case, Murray versus Pearson, that the Margold and separate but equal doctrines are first applied. The doctrines are also applied in the Gaines versus Canada case in 1938, which was ruled on following the Murray case two years later. In the Murray case, the Merlin Supreme Court ruled the state has undertaken the function of education in the law, but has omitted students of one race from the only adequate provision made for it and omitted them solely because of their color. On January 15, 1936, the court affirmed the lower court ruling, which ordered the University of Maryland to immediately integrate its student population and therefore created a legal precedent making school segregation in Maryland illegal. You might be wondering, why did the Gaines case have to go forward in Missouri? Well, the Murray case established a precedence in the state of Maryland, but no other state. Back to Gaines versus Canada. As I mentioned, Lloyd Gaines applied to attend the University of Missouri Law School. Canada the official register at the University of Missouri, also known as Mizzou, denied Gaines's admittance on the basis of his race. Missouri law stated, separate free schools shall be established for the education of children of African descent, and it shall be unlawful for any colored child to attend any white school or any white child to attend a colored. Missouri law stated that if a black person wanted to study a particular field at a white college and the area of study was not offered at a black university, the white institution had to allow the black student to enroll or pay for the student to attend an out-of-state college. Ultimately, Gaines is going to win. School segregation in Missouri is going to come to an end in 1938. But Gaines comes up missing and to this day has never been found. Based on the times, there is no doubt in my mind he was killed. You might be asking yourself, DeWitt, why a history lesson on the Supreme Court? Because I want you to know the court doesn't always get it right. 
even though I believe the court was going to come down on the right side of history in the Gaines case, James P. McReynolds, an avid racist on the court, turned his back on the great Charles Houston as he gave his argument for integration. Imagine that, a Supreme Court justice turning his back on a black attorney. There are some important issues before the court, female production rights, gun control, voting rights. If you have never voted in your life, now is the time to start. So there you have it. A little historicity of the United States Supreme Court, highest court in the land. Some important judges, players through the years who have some ties to me. Important issues before the court and a call to action. Vote. Until next time, keep living your best life. God bless and Godspeed. speed. <laughs>